It's a joy to have you be a part of our worship time here at Kaioki Baptist Church. This is obviously our online worship, and um, we are going through the book of Romans in a series we've entitled Not Ashamed. And uh, today we're going to cover just three verses. So let's read Romans 8. I invite you to open your Bibles and... Um, or Bible, you don't have to open multi-Bibles, you can just open one. and uh, But open it, and I would encourage you to keep it open. Uh, if you mark in your Bible, have a pen or pencil handy, and, um, and we'll, get it, we'll get after. So Romans 8, we'll start in verse 28, and then we'll read through verse 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, uh, how wonderful you are, how uh, far beyond anything we could ever dream up is your plan and your purpose. And God, as, um, as we look at these uh, amazing truths that you put down and have given us in your word, we just ask that, um, Lord, we know that you're not the author of confusion, and so give clarity. And uh, Lord, where there is... Uh, where there's uncertainty, give humility. And, uh, and Lord, just open our eyes that we'll see and our ears that we'll hear. And, uh, Lord, that we will be changed more and more into the image of your precious Son. And it is through your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we ask this. Amen. One of the refreshing things about the Bible is its honesty. Uh, God doesn't try to trick us or hide the truth from us simply because it might offend us or we may not like it. Um, so as the Apostle Paul writes about the gospel, the good news, and what it means to live a life of the gospel, a life that, uh, as is the basis for our series title, Not Ashamed, drawn right out of chapter 1. Uh, Paul states that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation um, for all those that believe, the Jew and, and the Gentile. Um, and so we see in this letter, in this book of the Bible, what it means to live the gospel, live the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, as we come to this chapter, we reach the point where the apostle addresses the reality of suffering. And in doing so, encourages not, you know, both the, the Roman readers who he, he's writing to the church in Rome, but also consequently of, he, he encourages us or we should be encouraged with the presence of assurance in our lives. I mean, just kind of see how this, he toggles back and forth in 
In verse 17, he talks about the blessing of being a child of God. And if, if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then, he, so, so he gives the reality, there's suffering. And then in verse 18, he gives us assurance, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then in verses 19 through 22, he writes of how the earth groans because um, it has been subjected to futility. And, and then he turns in verse 23 and speaks of how we, um, man, man, man and woman, groan as we await our blessed hope. And from there he in verse 26 and 27, we looked at last time, he writes of the fact that the Holy Spirit helps us. Though we groan, though we wait with patience for what we do not see, we wait with hope. In the, in the, in the waiting, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? By interceding for us to the Father. So all, really the whole chapter, uh, Romans 8, deals with assurance. But in our passage today that we, just, that we just read, which you may have picked up on, includes one of the most beloved promises in all the Bible, we see the foundation of our assurance. And that's going to be the title of today's message, the foundation of our assurance. Where does it come from? Where is it drawn from? And so I, wanna, I want us to look at three ingredients of assurance that Paul gives us in these three verses. Now, depending on how fine and minute you want to you get into the, the, the passage, and this is, if I, I probably don't have to tell you, this is one of the weightier, meatier three verses that you'll find in all of the Bible. And you could certainly dig with a microscope and just be more and more overwhelmed. But we're going to pull three ingredients that we can, um, that we can kind of stand on as the foundation of our assurance. So we're in, the first one, we're going, to just, we're going to take a look at verse 28, this great, great promise. And um, as Paul talks about the knowledge of how God works. The knowledge of how God works. In verse 28, um, it says, we know. Well, what do we know? And Paul is just make, making this statement. You know, hey, you know this. Well, what Paul said that we know? Well, the answer is, first of all, he tells us that we know that all things work together. Now, the ESV, uh, different translations get this, uh, get verse 28 in a little bit different order. Um, ESV tends to follow the, the actual original Greek, but if the, the, the thought is we know that all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, 
So we know that all things work together. Uh, the, 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 gr the Greek word he uses for all is one of the, the basic elementary words in the Greek language. When you're learning Greek, when I learned Greek in a class called Baby Greek, uh, it's seminary, it's kind of like in English where you learn uh, a word like see or run. This is one of those words because it's so prevalent in Greek literature and particularly in the Greek New Testament. It is the word panta and literally the word means everything. So when we say what is it we know, well we know that everything works together. What's included in everything? Everything. What's included in all things? All things. All things work together. We just looked at verse 17 and where he writes about our sufferings. All our sufferings work together. Our diseases, whether it be cancer or Crohn's or heart issues, um, your defeats, your wins, your losses, all things work together. You maybe have... Uh, we're in a committed relationship. You thought you found the love of your life and like that, they were gone. Uh, maybe by their choice, maybe because of illness or death. Um, disappointments. All things. Those things that make us happy, those things that we rejoice in, those things that make us sad. New life. All things. Death. All things. Birth. Old age. <laughs> Gray hairs. No hair. Very little hair. Right? Uh, political dis dismay. All things. All things. Now, I want you to stop and think about when he says all things. Um work together. If everything, all these things that happen in our life, they literally work together. What, what does that mean? Well, it means the only way that's possible is if the one who works all things together is sovereign over all of life, right? I mean, God reigns over everything from, um, the sm from the smallest atom to the greatest star in the sky, um, from a little itty-bitty fire ant to an asteroid sailing across the sky. Um, he reigns over everything. Our past, he reigns over it. Our present, he reigns over it. Our future, God reigns over it. All things work together. All things work together. Um, to, that word together is not an arbitrary um, or impersonal way things work together. Um, it's not describing some type of fatalism. 
Like there's just karma out there, yin and the yang, and, and somehow the force sees that all things come together. Instead, this is the work of a personal, caring, yes, sovereign, almighty, loving God who makes all things work together, notice, for good. He makes all things work together for good. That's why we say this is not fatalism. This is not some impersonal force. This is the God of all creation who entered creation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and lives within those that he recreates his children, his people through his spirit. This is as personal as it gets. He works all things together for good. Now, I do just want to spend a, a brief amount of time, I think it's worth, worthy of addressing, that it's not, Scripture does not say that all things are good. Um, our suffering is not always good. Now, it, the amazing thing is God can take our suffering for good. Listen, our sin clearly is not good. It is sinful. But God can cause even our sin to work together for good. Death, right? I mean, Jesus came to destroy death. And that is exactly what he did in his death and resurrection. These things in and of themselves are not good, but this great God makes these things work together for good. And I don't know of, of a better, there, there may be uh, at least an, an equal example of this, but it's not coming to me in the moment. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us back to Genesis uh, with Joseph. You remember Joseph, who was the favorite of Jacob's sons, uh, and that cost him. He didn't ask to be the favorite. He was the favorite. Because he was the favorite, his brothers get intensely jealous of him. He didn't ask for that, but that's what happened. They throw him in a pit with the intention of him being killed. Instead, they sell him into slavery. He's taken down into Egypt. While in Egypt, he starts to rise just a little bit in, in stature and in respect. And he is lured into temptation, but rejects the temptation because he doesn't want to disgrace. He doesn't want to disgrace God. He's falsely accused of, uh, of assault, and he's thrown into prison. All these things happen to him. He eventually becomes second in charge of Egypt. His brothers come down. They learn that this is their brother that they have treated like filth. They have uh, rejected him. They have done him evil. And as they come before Joseph, Joseph nails the situation basically by kind of giving a, a foretaste of Romans 8.28 when he says to them, everything that you did against me, all these things you meant for evil, but God meant them for good. God meant them for good. That's, 
That's Romans 8.28. That's God causes all things to work together for good. So it's not that everything is good. When you watch your child de- develop a, 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 the flu or some kind of a malady, you're, you're not cheering that on. But you can trust that the God who reigns over all things works, will work this for good. Okay? Now, that leads us to the, the other part of Romans 8.28, and that is, who is this, is this promise, is this great truth appropriate for everybody? Is this... Is this a universal truth for all people? And Paul makes it very clear that the answer to that question is no. It is specific. It is for, notice, those who love God. And then if you're in the ESV, it's the last statement in verse 28. And who are called according to his purpose. Those those are the recipients of the promise. It is for the people that love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's it's fascinating. I I think it's fascinating. We probably could get away from from going here, but I just think it's too, too sweet of a connection to miss and pass up on. In chapter one, when Paul's addressing the reader, when he's opening, in his opening, and he's telling them who he is and why he has the authority to write to them. And he says, to all, in verse 7, to all those in Rome, now get this, who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's almost the same phraseology with a significant exception. In chapter 8, it's not those that are loved by God. Now, the overall picture is this is the great love of God. When we get to verse 31 uh, next time, that the rest of this chapter is immersed in the love of God. The book, the arc of the book is the love of God. We can have assurance because of the love of God. Don't want to get into next week, but... But what he specifically says in verse 28 is for those who love God. Now, throughout the New Testament, we see, throughout the Old and New Testament, it is a biblical truth that God loves his people. But one of the markers of being a child of God is you love God. You love God. The the Greek word that he uses for love is, is the word agape. And um, he says, for those who love God, that's the mark of a believer. One of the marks of a believer, you love God. You love God. We sometimes get satisfied in the fact God loves me. And he does. He does. But do you love him? Do you love him? And it is for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, it's, it's, um, th- this is one of those uh, great words that is used in more than one way. In Scripture, there is a, the word call is used generally, and it is used specifically. It is used outwardly, and it is used inwardly. 
Let me, let me try to explain. Um, Jesus made the statement, many are called, few are chosen. When probably the greatest evangelist for most of our lifetimes is, is the great, late, the late, great Billy Graham, um, who it's believed spoke and issued a call of the gospel to more people that, than have ever lived on the planet, right? And Billy Graham was a master at giving that call to come to Christ. Well, that's the general call. This word, Greek word kaleo is used that way. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, it's also used in a much more narrow way, inwardly. That's the outward call, all come. But there is a time, and Paul is writing about this time, and he's going to come back to it um, in verse 30, where the word call is specifically used when um, a person comes to Christ, recognizes, I need to give my life to Jesus. And, 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 and the beauty of this truth is, uh, it is that, that sense comes at the initiative of the Lord within that person. Now, it, it, God uses many things to lead us to Christ, right? Um, I, I, I can remember when my mom and dad took me to my pastor's office. I was a nine-year-old boy, and uh, our pastor shared the gospel with me. It was not a, it was not a, stars fell out of the sky. God didn't need to blind me. Um, I wanted to give my life to Christ. Right? Well, why? You know, in that, in that moment when I'm praying and I'm asking Christ to come into my life, God is issuing that call to me. But I, he began to issue that call where I desired him much earlier than that. I, I can remember as I'm listening to my pastor talk, I'm thinking about what he's asking me to do. Here's, what, here's what's wrong. One of the things, I don't remember everything. I was nine. But I can specifically remember being in that chair and I was thinking of hearing in time after time in my Sunday school classes, right, in a vacation Bible school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? And what happened was God used these, now never think, if you teach children, never think that what you do, if you teach adults, never, never believe that what you're doing doesn't matter, right? You go home and you think time after time, I don't think they got it. I don't think they got it. But God may be in the process of calling a young boy, a young girl, an adult that you teach week after week, month after month, year after year. And, and, and he is, what he's doing is he is setting us up so that when the opportunity that we hear the gospel, he calls us. And the difference between the inward call of God and the outward call of God is um, many people hear the outward call of God and reject it. 
right? Nobody hears the inward call of God and doesn't receive it. It is a certain call, right? And, and, and you, I'm just going to go ahead and address this here. Um, you go, Steve, how, how can you know that? How can you know that this particular call, it is a certain call. It is um, an effectual call of God. It's always effectual call of God. Well, because if you look down, when he does readdress it, uh, the, the, the idea, the word of calling, in verse 30, he says... Those whom he predestined, whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. The reason we can see that there's, there's, a, there's a difference between the general call and the personal call, the inward call, the effectual call, is because in this personal call, if you receive this call of God, you are justified, right? Those things happen uh, not necessarily synonymously. They're not, it's simultaneously is the better word, right? Because I, the, the, and now this is me. This is me looking into how this word is used. Because I believe that inward call can happen over time, but it is certain. And there is a point in time where that inward call brings about the justification, the, the, the opening of the eyes and the faith in Christ that now, yes, I believe in Jesus. So, it is those, all of that to say, it is the people that love God and who have been called according to the purpose of God that can know all things work together for good, right? If I don't love God, if I have not been called, and, and listen, if, if, I, if I've been called by God, I will love him, all right? Um, I can know that all things work together for good. If I don't know Christ, you may be you you may be watching and you don't know Jesus and you're maybe you're sitting on the the fence or uh you've heard it before and you're just not ready, you're not certain. Okay, I'm glad you've got some clarity on your relationship with God, but you need to know that this promise, well people sometimes treat this promise like a Hallmark greeting card, you know, as they see, well there's always silver lining behind every cloud, right? Uh, that's not what this is addressing. This is addressing the fact that for the people of God who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, that are enduring suffering, hardship, pain, they can know that God causes all things to work together for their good. Okay? All right. Um, so the first ingredient of our assurance is, is knowing how God works, right? He causes all things to work together for good. That's how he works for those who love him and are called by him. So here's the second ingredient, ingredient and that is the depth of our assurance. The depth of our assurance itself, 
gives us assurance. I, I know that may sound kind of odd, but the fact from where it, it comes from gives us assurance. So in verse, verse 29, we read what is, if there's a controversial part in, in these three verses, it deals with this verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All right. Uh, let me let me briefly state um, the idea of predestination has over the centuries caused division, uh, caused confusion, caused what I would call sinful pride. Um, when actually, um, this is given to us not as something, God is never the author of confusion, and that's not why he tells us that he predestines. Um, he gives it to us so that we will have not just assurance, but so that we will know that our assurance is rooted is grounded in eternity past in his precious love for his people. That's why he gives this to us. This is not, this is not intended to divide us. It is intended to cause us to hit our knees and cry, Oh God! How wonderful, how amazing is your grace to us. Um, so let's, let's, let's look at it. Um, and, and with that stated, um, I, I, I want to I address the very nature of those who struggle with the idea of predestination. And uh, I want to say this in humility. And so this could, this has the potential to, to come across stark and harsh and uncaring. But it, I, I mean it in no way any of, in, in any of that. Um, we, w listen, we have the freedom, even at our church, how you understand and believe predestination, we have said, this, we're not going to let it divide us, right? We allow freedom. We, we give, hey, we love one another. This is not a doctrine, an issue that we are going to allow to divide us. It is a, it is a precious doctrine. And if somebody disagrees with me or I disagree with someone else, okay. All right, we're not going to fight over this. Um, but I do want to say this. The reality of, predest of predestination is just that. In other words, we might disagree on what it means, but we cannot disagree on whether or not it's real. Okay? Because when, if I am to say, I don't believe in predestination, in essence what I'm saying is, I don't believe the Bible. Because it's in the Bible, right? 
We may, we may disagree on the definition, but we must not disagree on the fact that God, it means something. It's not up to us to pick and choose the words we are going to recognize and say, okay, this is biblical, this is not. It's in the Bible. This is not the only place it's in the Bible. But if it was, only, if it was, if it was only in Scripture, one, one place, Romans 8, 29 and 30, it's in there, okay? So we can't say, I don't believe it, Preda. If you're, if you're a Christian and you believe Scripture, you can't say, nah, I don't believe it. Well, it's not, you don't have that luxury, okay? I don't have that luxury. So what does it mean? Well, here's the, here is the ironic thing in all of this. The is, because it's in there, throughout the history of the church, really, predestination gets all the, the spotlight and gets all the uh, acclaim and gets all the, the argument and the disagreement. But the real question is not, does God predest? What the word means is pretty clear. It means God marked off beforehand. Okay, there you go. That's not the basis of the disagreement. The basis of where you land on the sovereign work of God is actually found in how you understand foreknowledge, the word that, that precedes it. Um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, the fascinating thing is everybody agrees God foreknows. God foreknows all things. That's part of being God. And so we get worked up over the fact that he also predestined. Oh, okay. That's as close as me speaking in tongues as you're going to get. All right. But that, the issue is what does foreknowledge mean? We know what predestined means. What does foreknowledge mean? And, 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 and where I, what I'm getting at is some people believe that that word foreknowledge um, is a description of the fact that God, before he predestined, looked down the slippery slope of time and saw into the future before these people were ever, ever existed, saw who would choose him, and based on their choice of him, he then predestined them. Okay? Because you can't, you, can't, you can't cut off predestined. It's there. And so the, their understanding of foreknowledge is, is it's merely an intellectual knowledge, foreknowledge of what would happen in the future base and, and, and therefore he bases his choice, his predestining on a particular person choice of him that he saw that they would make and so based on their one day choice he predestined them. You with me? Okay. And, and, and that's maybe what you believe. I have godly friends who believe basically that, that that's what foreknowledge means. Nobody dis, disbelieves that God foreknows all things, right? 
The, the, the other camp, and, and this is where you will find, this is, where, this is where I land, is based on what that word means. Um, and that is that the this word that's used for foreknowledge is more than just an intellectual exercise of God. It is a personal, actually intimate love that God has for the people that he foreknows. This, the, the word used here is gnosko, and it is the Greek word when the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, was translated into Greek. Um, it's called the Septuagint. The Greek word that is used, uh, the Hebrew word is yada. The Greek word is this word, gnosko. Um, it's used in Genesis where we read Adam and, and Adam knew his wife. In other words, it's used for sexual relationships between Adam and his wife as a, a, a man and a woman. Gnosko, he knew her intimately. Um, in Amos chapter 3, God, speaking through the prophet, says to his people, You only have I known from all the peoples on the earth. And you see, it's the word the, in Greek, gnosko. It, it, it means, okay, he knew all people on the earth. He knows everybody on the earth. But he specifically knew his people. He knew them in a way that he did not know other people, right? It included this intellectual awareness and knowledge of every person on the earth. But what he is saying is that he knew intimately his people, the Jews. Um, it's a powerful, powerful picture in in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. And I think it's, it's worth us turning there. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, and I, <laughs> listen to what God, listen to what God says to, uh, to his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So again, you have this sense of intimate relationship, this love that God has for his people. And so what you have in the difference in the distinctions between how people understand foreknowledge is on the one hand, um, some people see that God's predestining based on his foreknowledge is man, is the 
ultimate initiator with God. Man makes the first and ultimate decision to choose God. The other says, nope, based on God's love, he is the initiator. It is ultimately his first choice of man. Now, um, to try to work through this and uncomplicate this very briefly, I need to tell, uh, let's, 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 let's put something on the table here. Where I think a lot of confusion comes is when people overplay what it means, what God's foreknowledge and predestination, how that works out in real life. Remember, these two things occur in eternity past, okay? In present, in our lifetime, this does in no way do away with the fact that we are a volitional people. We make choices every day. We choose what we eat. We choose where we live. We choose where we worship, right? We are a volitional people. We're not puppets on the end of a string. God made us volitional. We choose evil. We choose good, right? And so when it comes to our faith and our trust in Christ, we, we, that's not something that, that happens apart from our personal volition, the decisions and choices that we make. Of course, I, listen, if I, never, if I never choose Christ, if I never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I can't rely on the idea, well, it doesn't matter because I was foreknown and predestined before the foundation of the world. All that, if I never put my faith in Christ, if I never trust him, receive his grace, what that means is I was never foreknown in this way and I was never predestined. So, we go. That's why we give to missions so much. We share the gospel. We preach and teach the good news of Jesus Christ because I sure don't know. We sure don't know who God has foreknown and who, is, who, who he is, has predestined. He knows that. We just are, we're here to be faithful to him. And in being faithful, it means we are to go into all the world. Teaching, baptizing, declaring this amazing God that we serve. Okay, let me, uh, let me very briefly wrap up here. Um, the goal of our assurance. The goal of our assurance is um, founded in the second part of verse 29 through verse 30 where he says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, I get this. We were foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Don't let it shock you that the predestining, the foreknowing and predestining is that we will be transformed that we will be like Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It takes us back 
to verse 16 and 17 where the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're back to that. That is the beauty. That's why we have this assurance because it happened. The depth of it is it happened with God, by God, for God. But its goal is that we will be like Christ, the Son of God. Verse 30, then those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. That's real time. I give my life to Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a great place to wrap up our exposition of these three verses because he is writing of something that is yet to happen to us, to his readers. They've not been glorified. But when he describes the being glorified, he does so in the past tense, whom he justified, he also glorified. Why would he do that? To show the certainty of what God is doing. He will bring this to pass. You can have assurance. You can know that God will finish what he began, what he started. So I want to close you. I'm not going to elaborate on these. I want to close just in a very practical way. I want to give you four very quick things about the idea and the understanding of God's sovereign reign, verse 28, of his, however you come down with foreknowledge and predestination, um, how, what, what, understand that first of all, it's something we to are, are, are to approach humbly. We are to approach humbly. Second, we are to give Scripture the final say. One of the, one of the ways this is done in humility is to say, whatever the, the topic is from Scripture, can you honestly say, you know what, this is what I've always believed, but I'm willing, if Scripture teaches differently than what I have believed, I'll go with Scripture. Woo. I'll go with Scripture. Third, it's okay to admit, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand how it, all this works out. Listen, um, later on, we're going to get to the end of chapter 11, believe it or not. And then cha- verses 33 through 36, the Apostle Paul states, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's okay to not understand everything. There's only one God. He's got it. That's why we have assurance. And then finally, uh, I want to say what you believe about these things like foreknowledge and predestination and um, what you believe does not save you or cost you your salvation, right? I've got, I've got friends that are so adamant on both sides that they sometimes give the, the sense that if you don't believe like they believe, you must not be saved. Oh, what a, what a lie from hell. You know what saves you? Faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what saves you. 
That's how one is justified. Faith in Christ alone. Um, I want to just close by giving a great example of two brothers who disagreed intensely over the the, the truths of this passage. And uh, one was John Wesley who, along with his brother Charles, wrote so many of the great hymns that we love, that we sing. Some of them are my favorite hymns. The other is George Whitfield, who had such a tremendous influence on Daniel Marshall, the founder of our church. Um, They disagreed on the idea of the sovereignty of God and his role in our salvation. Uh, They were at one time... Deep, dear friends. God used them to shake his kingdom. Whitfield was once asked uh, by someone who believed as he did, uh, Brother Whitfield, do you believe that we shall see John Wesley in heaven? And this was Whitfield's response. No, I do not believe we will see him in heaven. For he will be so far closer to the throne of God than we will ever be. Such is his light in his kingdom. It is no coincidence that Whitfield asked that Wesley would preach at his funeral. And Wesley did. And at, in, in his remarks, which you can still find, you can go online and find Wesley's remarks at Whitfield's funeral, he praises this man whom he disagreed with on certain things, but he saw the greatness of God in his life. Uh, We must not let these wondrous assurances of God separate us. In fact, as we're going to see next time, Paul himself is going to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Bless those that have been with us today. Don't allow your truth to become an obstacle, but in fact, may it become a magnet to the cross that we constantly come to and humbly submit ourselves to you, our Lord, our Savior, our God. Amen and amen. Thank you for being with us. We're going to close in worship through song. I look forward to being with you next time. May he bless you.